Welcome back to Acid Horizon, the Fury podcast. And today we are making a triumphant return to one of our favorite topics, the philosophy and historical materialism of disability and ableism with this new book, Empire of Normality, Neurodiversity and Capitalism, out now from Pluto Press. And we are overjoyed to be joined by the book's author, one Robert Chapman. Robert's here to talk talk with us about the history of eugenics, how it links back to modernity, and how to create new kinds of solidarity and praxis across the divides between the working class and those excluded from various aspects of production by the apparatus of disability itself. Robert, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. So let, let's start off with a broad, dramatic question. What What is eugenics? Because when people, I'm assuming if people are hearing this word, they're particularly associated with the Nazis, with the Germany, basically Germany in the 30s, the late 40s. They think, well, they're gone. Quote, unquote, maybe the Nazis are gone. They're kind of coming back a bit. But, but uh, wh- why are we still talking about eugenics then? Why is historical discourse still needed? And as you point out in the book, it's because that the eugenics in its origins, its practice, and its legacy is actually something, particularly if you're sort of in the Anglosphere, Britain and the United States in particular, is far more close to home. So what is eugenics? Where did it come from? And why did you focus so much on it in your history of disability? Right. So eugenics was an attempt at building a new science in the late 19th century. It began in Britain. It's now widely seen as a pseudoscience, and it was the science of improving the race or or, or the humanity as a whole. This could either be through things like funding certain people to be able to have more children and stopping other people having children in various ways, all the way to kind of much more full-on like Nazi eugenics, where you're literally just exterminating people you see as as, as a kind of burden on on the race. It was deeply intertwined with white supremacy with the views of about class in the British Empire at the time. So lots of it was directed towards proposals for upper class people to be able to you know, reproduce in higher numbers. There were worries about the race degenerating. It was very much intertwined with thinking about races being in competition with each other and worries about, you know, basically white supremacists worried that like the, the white race would deteriorate and it was worried, worries about race mixing and these kinds of things. And it was deeply intertwined with notions of ability, things like intelligence, or, well, then they would say things like genius and idiocy, and attempts to essentially, you know, the the science was very much intertwined with attempts to to rank people, right, in terms of their functioning. It's worth saying a bit about the, I mean, now we see it as a pseudoscience. I don't think it's necessarily helpful to dismiss it that quickly. Lots of the practices that were made then we still use in science today. I I argue in the book, I try to show how eugenics and eugenic thinkers and their work really grounded modern psychology and medicine in various ways. What's seen in particular as pseudoscientific is the idea that you can improve the, the race, basically, or improve humanity as a whole. But most of the things they were doing, people are still you know, doing the same thing today. It can be like genetic counseling. These kinds of things are part of the legacy of eugenics. As you mentioned, people will have been more aware of the of the kind of mass Nazi extermination of of disabled people, among others. After that point, the term eugenics became tainted and people stopped using it so much. But people didn't necessarily change their, you know, ideas and goals. They just kind of often rebranded slightly. So lots of people who were who were in like a eugenics department at a university would then 
be in like a genetics department or a psychology department or something like that. But much of the world today is still structured based on eugenic principles, various various things. I mean, just to give one quick example, in England, we still have schools left over from the post-war reforms where they brought in three kinds of school. A comprehensive, that's just a general school for, for, for ordinary people, as it were. Grammar schools, which were supposed to be for intellectually gifted people. And then technical schools, which were more for like more kind of vocational. That was made based in significant part on the suggestion of a eugenicist called Cyril Burt, who was a psychology professor at the University of Liverpool in Britain. He was very influential for a while. He claimed that he had he did like twin studies and stuff like that, and it supported the idea that, that all children could roughly be fit into kind of three types of intelligence, right? You're either practical, you're pretty mediocre, or you're great, basically. And therefore, that we needed to base our policy on this. Now, we still have those schools today, and we still, we still like, you know, children take take tests to see which school they should go to. They never actually made many technical schools, so that didn't really happen. I don't know why that was just kind of government messing stuff up or whatever, but but they, they plan to. But we still have grammar schools, right? So if people pass a certain test, they get put into this school, which leads to loads better life outcomes for them um, based on this kind of, you know, eugenicist thinking from almost 100 years ago. And it's worth saying, I mentioned this in the book, he, Cyril Burt, I think after he died, it turned out he he just made up a lot of his results. So he didn't even have the scientific backing from twin studies to justify this anyway. But that's just an example of how kind of pervasive eugenics is. It really structures a lot of our society all the way from school to, to, to you know, all the way through the lifespan, basically, in all sorts of ways we might not necessarily recognize and associate with eugenics. No, absolutely. I mean, thank you. For that. that was incredibly comprehensive, not to go on a pun from the school's sort of overview. And it, it all builds up into not only the, the, the history of eugenics that you give in the book, but also this, this central concept of the empire of normality, which is, to use a pun and a description, the superstructure of eugenics and its sort of residuals, sort of, well, not residual, very intense control over how we think about the body, how we think about difference, how we think about neurological difference today. So could we unpack this concept of the empire of normality it's, and also in what it's responding to, which is also responding to more developments in recent thoughts in terms of the neurodivergent movement, people like Singer and Walker, not Peter Singer, for anyone who's listening, thank God, not Peter Singer, but this, 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 this aspect of the two main sources here of this new concept, the empire of normality and the, the lineage of neurodivergent thought, which I guess most people probably wouldn't have heard of, really, unless you're already in these kind of disability, of, of philosophy of disability circles. Sure, yeah. So I think I'll, I'll start saying a bit about neurodiversity and then why I propose the concept of the empire of normality. So the neurodiversity movement is a I mean, I think lots of people now know the term neurodiversity. Lots of people hear of it, but might not necessarily know the history. So very briefly, it began in autistic communities who were basically able to connect via the internet in the early days of the internet in the 1990s. And because of that, there was really a kind of intense period of consciousness raising. Their problems had been framed as just individual medical problems, which needed to be solved medically. And when they kind of got together and were able to talk to each other, they were they began to realize that actually lots of these problems were external to them. They were about the environments they were in. They were about attitudes and disabling barriers and that kind of thing. So they developed this more politicized understanding. At the same time, they began to realize that they actually often had traits that they valued in each other, but weren't necessarily recognized as valuable. So sometimes people started talking about autistic strengths in cognition as well as just deficits, for example. 
So autistic people often, but certainly not always, are good at things like attention to detail or logical thinking and those kinds of things. And basically out of this came the idea of neurodiversity. It's supposed to be a kind of analogy with biodiversity. And it's kind of a resistance to the kind of force and pressures of normalcy, of, of trying to push everyone to become normal. The idea was that just as we recognize that biodiversity is valuable and that we should try and conserve it, and obviously it's being destroyed by capitalism and so on, similarly, we should value neurodiversity. And instead of trying to conform to a relatively restricted norm, we should try to change the world in ways to support neurodivergent people. It wasn't just autistic people, it's worth saying. It was other people too, just people who had diagnoses like dyslexia and dyspraxia, although it's primarily autistic communities. So Singer, Judy Singer was is quite important, I think, in the history of the movement because she wrote the first sociological study of this movement in its very early days and therefore kind of grasped this. She brings a kind of glimpse of a particular moment and a kind of politics, which I thought was helpful to kind of grapple with. And she frames it, interestingly, as an identity politics approach and a civil rights movement. And more recently, I think she wrote that it was about making capitalism kinder. So they did draw on things like a social model of disability, which politicizes disablement and sees it as a problem of disabling barriers rather than just individual deficits. But she really didn't take an anti-capitalist perspective or anything like that. It was, as, as she said, trying to make capitalism kinder. Now, I think most of the neurodiversity movement has been a kind of liberal reformist rights-based approach. And that's something I think I admit has I acknowledge has been valuable in my in the book. And I'm certainly not dismissive of it at all. I think it's been really valuable. People draw on all kinds of disability rights or or new ones have been proposed as well since that time, of course. And you can get things like reasonable accommodations in the workplace and stuff like that. So you can kind of fit in a bit with society a bit more and also kind of change society a bit as well. I mean, one of the main issues with this for me was that it didn't really take into account the role of the kind of deeper logics of capitalism, basically in in causing disablement, in causing discrimination against disabled people. And I thought there were good reasons to think that you you will never really escape that, even with rights. They will they will kind of protect you a little bit. They'll protect some people, but often the most privileged disabled people, basically privileged in other ways, maybe if you're middle class or male or white and those kinds of things. Some of the stuff I talk about, for instance, is that almost everyone incarcerated in our prisons is neurodivergent. There's a very clear school to prison pipeline for neurodivergent people. And, you know, it's not clear to me what good a right for reasonable accommodations in the workplace is if you're in a school to prison pipeline, because you probably won't be in, in that kind of work in the first place. So I, so I was concerned to kind of go beyond. It's worth mentioning Walker as well. So Walker was writing, started publishing in about 2011, I think, and has been very influential on me and the neurodiversity movement. She proposed this notion of a paradigm shift, in, and that's what, as suggesting that's what the neurodiversity movement was trying to do, a shift away from what she called the pathology paradigm, which is very restricted kind of conceptions of normalcy in our scientific research, in our clinical practices, um, and in our culture more generally, um, and shifting to a neurodiversity paradigm, um, which would be a broader cultural and a scientific paradigm, which totally changes how we study, research, and uh, practices uh, in 
education, in the clinic and so forth, and also things like cultural representations and those kinds of things. So I think this is more, this is helpful. It's, it's, it's right to an extent, but I don't think it goes far enough. Again, I guess you use the term, the superstructure. I don't think I use that term in the book actually, but basically from a Marxian perspective, it's, well, it focuses in a sense on the superstructure, but leaves the base intact. It doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't focus or resist the kind of fundamental economic relations of capitalist society at all. And I make the case that we need to, we need to do that too. The empire of normality is a concept which gestures both towards the superstructure, but also towards the base as well. So it tries to connect mm. these and to emphasize the base more than has been emphasized in the neurodiversity movement until now, linking it to the fundamental logics of capitalism, to the needs of the economy at any given time. And I guess it's worth saying I use the term empire as well rather than anything else because I wanted to emphasize how the pathology paradigm grew out of the logics of not just capitalism, but the British empire, which includes mm. kind of race, racist hierarchies and the, those kinds of things as well. Yeah, so that, that's the basic, the, the basic concept. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And that's a really helpful way to sort of frame where I kind of want to take this next question, which is so much of the history of disability is marked by certain epistemic modes of revealing human beings, right? Like the mode of production is not separable from how we're revealed to each other. And one of the things that I think your approach to the question of neurodiversity in sort of the history of eugenics, which of course, like I don't think dissipates after the second world war. If anything, I think, what what you kind of reveal is just how strong the the presence of sort of eugenic scientific commitments to to the sort of refinement of the human being or really the refinement of the labor so so my question would be what really is if there is any the relationship between sort of the emergence of a pathologization of thinking that comes from the shift in post-industrial societies towards the information economy. You know, how how do you think, for example, the the mode of production and the proliferation of sort of new forms of disablement or new new needs to to sort of police aberrance manifests in sort of the late 90s because this is right when the same when these when these political movements and forms of sort of community solidarity as resistance as such right sort of emerge so if you could just talk a little bit about some of the more because we've been da dancing around certain marxist terms right but if you could talk a little bit more about the the direct connection between the mode of production and uh the way in which sort of eugenic thinkers speak about disability that'd be that'd be great Great, yeah. So I will say about the mode of production first and then something about the the kind of what was going on in the 90s and, and since then. So I argue that the, the problem starts much earlier. It starts with the rise of capitalism. It gets worse in the Industrial Revolution, and then it kind of gets worse and worse and worse as capitalism intensifies. So the claim there is that neuronormativity is, is inherently linked to capitalism. And that's not to say there was no people with like, you know, impairments or, or whatever before, even though we might not have used that term. It's just that the kind of really tight and ever-restricting norms of mental functioning 
that we have now are a specific capitalist problem. Um, part of that relates to the fundamental logics. Um, with capitalism, of course, you have a real emphasis on competition. Then you have you have competition between workers. You've got to compete for jobs or to promotion and that kind of thing. Capitalists are in competition with each other. There's a constant revolution of technologies and so forth. And from this, everyone becomes even implicitly, at least even before you had science to, to do this, ranked against each other in in a new way. It becomes much more salient, and out of this, a kind of norm emerges, a norm of of, of abilities in your mind and your body, um, and and so on. So that's part of it. It's the kind of fundamental logics. But capitalism also has a disposition to, you know, there's constant revolution of the means of production, of the kind of technologies of control and so forth. And that's built into its logics too. And because of this, you have the constant tightening of these norms in various ways. Now, in the book, I go through this very concretely at different points and show how this has developed. But I will skip forward now to the kind of 1990s, as, as you say. So why did the neurodiversity movement need to arise then? Why were, you know, movements don't arise because unless they really need to and it, in most cases, right? I argue that there was a, a few things going on. There was, of course, the rise of neoliberalism. This is just, you know, makes the kind of pressures in work and stuff like much worse than they were before that. But you also have this kind of shift towards post-Fordism. You have a collapsing of traditional distinctions, say, between work and home, between employed and unemployed, public and private, especially as you kind of have the, the internet and things like emails, right? So like, you know, your boss can contact you at any time of the night. People read their emails on weekends. Maybe you're working from home, but like we all do that now, right? So you have this like expansion in a sense of the domain of cap out of these into what were previously private places, into into our minds in certain ways, into, our, into our, the ways our, our mental functioning works. So there's that factor at the same time, really important is the shift to the service economy. Um, you have much more of a re reliance on emotional labor. This, of course, tightens the emotional norms of, of your emotional functioning, right? It's exceptionally hard to be able to do something like work in a coffee shop where you've got to do, like, cognitively and effectively, you've got to do so much. You've got to have kind of good working memory for a start. Um, to like take orders of all these different kinds of like lattes and milks and stuff like that. You've got to be able to have like certain sensory processing capacities to like hear, you know, customer orders and stuff through all these kind of noises and, you know, coffee machine noises and bright lights and conversations. And then you've got to smile and be like happy and kind and pleasant and all those kinds of things. So you, that's a kind of very typical job of like a service economy, but you need, you need a very particular set of, of, very wide ranging set as well of, of kind of cognitive and effective skills that you might not have needed so much in, in previous ages. So you have this kind of real tightening of emotional and effective and cognitive norms through this period, I think. And um, that's why in, in the book, I describe post-Fordism as a mass disabling event. Just just to pull back a little bit into the 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 way in which it becomes a mass disabling event, one of the things which I think people will probably get, like one of the most amazing things people get from this book is learning the history of the concept of the norm or not normality as such because i it, it it's a concept which you know it normalizes itself well, as soon as you say normality what, what do you mean the concept of normality it's always been here it's it's the concept of normality is itself normal but you're you've actually shown the way that it is a historically produced normality. Normality is historically produced. And this goes through the concepts, particularly in statistics, and in the very sort of 
pernicious way in which the average shifts across history and the notion of the average is set as a standard to which essentially social organization reaffirms itself around this average to the extent that if you look at sort of surveys of american self-reported intelligence they're all above the average if you ask them in a way and it's 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 quite an interesting uh, ideological component of our way of thinking about ability today so if we want to sort of get into the, the the history you set out here of the development of this empire of normality, could we start with the work of Adolf Quetelet and particularly the statistical work that he uses, which ends up being built into the origins of, of eugenics? Great, yeah. So for this, I was influenced by, it's worth saying, I was influenced by the disability studies scholar Leonard Davis and the work of Ian Hacking and others who have done really important work on the history of, of normalcy. What I was trying to do was to place it in the kind of broader context of like uh, capitalism and colonialism, basically, as well as the broader political economy, I guess. But yeah, so Quetelet's, his he's a, he calls himself a social physicist, which is like an early social scientist. He actually begins as an astronomer. And at this time, the like a statistical norm is only used in astronomy. It's used to track stars, which you can't always see. So you find the points that you see, and then you kind of try to make an average, and then you get this thing called an error curve. And the error is, you know, further away from um, from the average, and that's where the star is less likely to be. And what Quetelet does, and this is in the 1830s, so this is following the French Revolution, and then he also experienced the Belgian Revolution. So really, when when kind of the the last remnants of, of feudalism are kicked out in this kind of new kind of bourgeois society is really in place. He applies this to humans for the first time, and he proposes this concept of the average man. And that's in something which is very familiar today, the idea that you could have like things like an average, talk about, like I don't know, the average heart rate or, or, or things like that. But this was kind of very radical at the time. He originally does this by taking there's data on Scottish sol- soldiers and like their chest sizes and things like that, and starts making averages and suggesting that, that you can have this notion of the average man. And he also associates this with health. So he associates it with the normal state of health. Health hadn't really been associated with normality for for long before that at all. So it really changes how we think about health. Prior to that, it had really been associated with harmony or equilibrium, traditionally going right back to the ancient Greeks and and other ancient medical traditions globally. And he, very importantly as well, he associates the average with perfection and abnormality with monstrosity. So he basically says that, you know, if you're more average and close to the average, that's, you know, you're more ideal, you're more perfect. And if you're further from the average, you're monstrous and not just, not just healthy and and unhealthy, but you're the kind of ideal of that society. So in in some way, this is kind of uh, in line with the kind of democratic ideals of the French revolution, because instead of like the king or the high priest being perfect, it's now the average man right? The kind of man in the middle. And it's this kind of like new kind of like bourgeois kind of way, you know, I, ideal basically. Interestingly, he also associates the average average man with an, a nation. He says each nation should have an average man. So it's not like the whole of humanity. I link this with nationalism in the book and the, the rise of kind of nationalism of the time. So if, for instance, you're a, say, a black man in a white majority nation, you would, according to Quetelet's analysis, be more monstrous, for instance, right? So, so it's also has these kind of like racial notions and, and evaluations built into it. So this is just hugely influential. Just to give an idea of how influential it is, one of one of his inventions is the BMI, you know, the, the body mass index. We used to check if someone is, you know, supposedly ideal weight. 
Uh, that was developed by Quetelet and it's still used today. It's widely criticized, of course, there's lots of resistance to it, uh, but it's still widely used as well. So, so yeah, that I, I argue that he kind of is a big part in paving the way of, for the pathology paradigm, although he's not the, I don't, I don't think he's the founder of the pathology paradigm. Um, do you want me, shall I say something about Galton as well or? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, he, he he is the the overarching villain of the book. He's the he's the thing which is the the, the return of the oppressed from the eighteen hundreds to nineteen hundreds. He, he's also just a fascinating figure because of the far reaching influence and there was kind of the I don't want to use the term mad scientist because that in a way sort of feeds into his own paradigm. But the the polymath, the evil polymath that sort of lingers over the British imperialism and, it, and its legacy throughout the entire way we think about the body. So yeah, absolutely, yeah, let's, let's get into the Galton. Right, great, yeah. So so Galton is, I mean, he's, yeah, he's, he's like one of the key villains of the book, as, as you say. He is like a very wealthy British guy. You know, he, he's born into like this family of gun manufacturers and bankers. He's also Charles Darwin's half-cousin and they, they know each other. And he's obsessed with ranking things from a young age and, you know, being who he is and his kind of positionality. He thinks that like white British men are like the best and, you know, uh, black people are the worst, basically. This is his kind of like he just soaks in the, the like racist views of the time and so forth. He becomes obsessed with intelligence and and, and these kinds of things and, and basically statistically ranking everyone as, as, as much as he can. He's very influenced by Quetelet, but also he is really influenced by his cousin's theory of evolution by natural selection and he really he brings these together and this kind of grounds this science of normality with with this kind of firm basis of, of the theory of evolution so he switches these kind of older almost like aristotelian terms of like monstrosity and perfection which are not really scientific at all with notions of like functioning and ability and tries to tries to ground this in this darwinian framework which makes it much more respectable importantly though whereas quetelet saw the average as perfect, Galton makes this shift where the average becomes mediocre. It's a step between, you know, those at the lowest and those who are the highest. So he's really concerned with basically, you know, sort of supermen, right? People who are super normal. And he's very concerned with people who are subnormal as well, on on his view. He does so much more. I mean, like he basically in doing this, he 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 makes the basis for like modern psychometrics for a lot of psychology. He was incredibly influential there. He does work in genetics. He does all sorts of things in criminology too. But all of it's about control, really. It's about controlling populations. It's about normalizing populations. It's built in with all, all the. It's infused with all these kind of racist and class based and and ableist logics. And ultimately, he also founds eugenics later in his life as well. So he coins eugenics. I propose that Galton is the founder of the pathology paradigm. We're still in that paradigm today, even though we, you know, eugenics is kind of like officially rejected everywhere. We still basically use the scientific paradigm that Galton proposed. It's just spread much further than he ever even imagined, really. He was using it mainly to test ability and 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 so on but it's it's the basis of as i say much of psychology of psychiatry and, and the kind of research paradigm we use today but that, that's the case i make at least anyway yeah so one of these things about so we keep returning to this question of the the rejection of eugenics um especially in the face of the the horrors of uh, Operation Tiergarten Strauss, Action T4, um, 
and you know the the sort of extermination campaigns of of Nazi Germany and one of the things that your that your book tries to at least sort of passively do is unsettle our our sort of desire to establish history in relation to to neurodiversity disability as something that has a sort of series of historical benchmarks and uh, progressions that move us sort of further and further away from the fundamental commitments that lead to things like the extermination of 6 million people in the 40s. But the sort of underlying commitments are still present, especially in places like analytic philosophy, right? Analytic philosophy of politics, like, for example, movements such as long-termism, these extraordinarily bourgeois and sort of quote-unquote philanthropic philosophical political movements. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how sort of the notion of normality and normalization feed in, in your opinion, to attempts for like, well, really neo-colonial and and white supremacist attempts to sort of improve the world at the level of the philanthropic, right? Um, And one of, so one of the things that I think Francis Galton hands us is an approach to to the species, which is like presented to us as fundamentally mutable, but with immutable laws of superiority, right? And inferiority. Do you still see this sort of operating in the way in which we organize labor today? The way in which we sort of train and invest in, in laborers, particularly in the United Kingdom. You know, one thing that shocked me as somebody who works on disability was how quick the NHS was to change care doctrine as it pertained to, to autism during the, the pandemic, how quickly they were willing to have these discussions about quality of life years as opposed to likelihood of survival, right? The way in which we, we ration medical supplies, for example. So when it, comes to, when it comes to sort of eugenic modernity, the norm and the emergence of sort of post-Fordist capitalism, what are, what are some ways then that you think that after we approach this book, that we can orient ourselves towards these kinds of lingering um, sort of scientific, pseudo-scientific, but really philosophical approaches to the human being? And what are some ways in which we can sort of start to identify the way in which this operates in, in our everyday lives? Good. Yes. Yeah. So I guess I, the way I frame the book, it's worth saying, and one of the core kind of aims of the book is I describe it as an attempt to develop a, a kind of historical neurodivergent consciousness. And I understand neurodivergence in the book as, you know, it's a relation to, to the norm, norms of capitalism, basically. At least not just that, but that, that's the most significant factor. And 
I guess it's worth, of course, you know, lots of people seek diagnoses and there's all different ways you can use diagnoses or relate to diagnoses. And of course, this changes how we understand ourselves. I Something I was concerned with on the one hand, you have this kind of like reification of your diagnosis as just this like natural individual you know, like neurological kind or something like that. I don't think that's very helpful. I also think it's false, right? It's it's It kind of reifies much broader problems. On the other hand, you get this kind of sometimes dismissive, like if people like understand themselves in, in these terms, if you say like, I have ADHD or I'm depressed, you'll kind of get some people who are like, ah, well, these are just like, these are just capitalist constructs. You've been duped. You should reject that. I very much think they're part of our social reality. So so I, so I definitely don't want to go down that route either. So in terms of trying to make sense of, of, of this, I think it's helpful to think of, for instance, things like the recent shift you see towards self-diagnosis, right? You see lots of people kind of going on TikTok, like teenagers, and kind of going, oh, I have ADHD, I have, I'm autistic, or whatever. And lots of people are scared about this and kind of saying like, oh, they're, you know, they're all, it's really terrible. People are self-diagnosing a social contagion and stuff like that. I don't think that at all. I, I think there's a prospect of a kind of nascent class consciousness here, right? And when I say that, I mean like, you know, before before there was really an organized working class, you know, who uh, had like mass union unionization and, and stuff like that, you have like earlier, you have some working class people kind of getting together and, and a kind of earlier class consciousness, a more basic one in some sense where people are kind of going, oh, I've got these problems and you've got these problems and you know our pay is bad and our work conditions are bad. And you, you start getting these kind of in somewhat crude attempts, right? Like the Luddites, they, they end up like smashing up machines and stuff like that, although they're not nearly as crude as people often uh, assume they are. But crude in comparison to like, you know, say like unionization or the kind of things which come after. So I, So I guess like, I think I have some hope for resisting this in this kind of recognition that we're all experiencing these problems and many, many of us are, and, and it's getting worse, basically. More and more people are ex- experiencing them than ever before. But if we think of this in terms of a class consciousness or a nascent class consciousness, then it's our responsibility. And I say our, all of us, it's our responsibility to help develop that class consciousness, right? So not to slip into a kind of reification of these disabilities, ADHD or autism or whatever, as, you know, just individual natural neurotypes or something, because there is some tendency to do that, but neither to slip into the other direction of just like dismissing them or saying they're not real, or it's just the medicalization of ordinary life, because we are actually disabled. Like I'm disabled. (laughs) Many, so many people are disabled now, but understanding that in a politicized sense in relation to, in relation to the development of capital, in relation to, in relation to various historical contingencies and so forth. Yeah, so that that's basically how I would think about that and the prospects and where where to go based on that from here, or part part of it anyway. I mean, there's actually a, a lovely quote actually from towards the end of the book, which I'd like to actually have to, to just read out actually to get into more of a sense of this discussion of the recent politics of disablement, both for neurodiverse people and for neurotypical people. And so there's a, a great quote here that says, "For based on the historical analysis provided in the previous chapters, capitalism." especially once it reaches a period where labor requires high-level cognitive or emotional processing, is increasingly disposed towards making us all, at the very least, either mentally ill or disabled. This includes those positioned as temporarily neurotypical, 
who it harms, even if not so directly, as neurodivergence. And this very much feeds into a couple of the themes towards the end of the book, which do turn towards the question of how to politicize this history. And, you, you, of course, you, you borrow some terms from, for example, the recent book Health Communism and the, and, you know, the, the comments over at Deaf Panel podcast about the ways in which the the many neurodivergent and particularly uh, you know, generally disabled people overall are treated in a manner of extractive abandonment, rendering them in a term which most people would only know from Charles Dickens, but it, you know, which, which, is, which is surplus, a surplus population or a Marxist terms, a reserve army of, of labor. And what I think I'm really sort of, sort of fantastic is the way you try to fuse the interests of the working class and the more precarious aspects of the so-called surplus class, you know, in that, they are less productive in a sense that they, their bodies don't fit into normalization patterns of, like, of value production and extraction. But at the same time, their interests are the same. They have the same enemies, which is a way of you know, bringing that class consciousness across the, the strata in a way that might in a way sort of change it from the standard Marxist dynamics. I was wondering if you could talk about that a bit, a bit more in terms of this idea of surplus, uh, the unity of the working class and surplus classes, and how to fuse those into a, sort of a, a wider Marxist uh, synthesis as part of this, you know, this, this neurodivergent or neurodiverse class consciousness. Good, yes. Yeah. So part of what I was trying to do here was to, some, sometimes something I see on the left among some people who at least call themselves Marxists or like or, or elsewhere is a, a kind of people who take like pride in their work which is you know that's that's fine but then to like distance themselves from people who don't work right like oh you know I just want a country which like provides for hard-working people and this kind of stuff right and I think that and then in the kind of much more horrible like kind of right-wing tabloids and stuff you get like stuff about scroungers and benefits benefits cheats and all that kind of stuff and it's just demonizing people who you know can't find work or can't work for whatever reason not all of not all people and benefits of course are disabled necessarily there's all sorts of reasons but so i definitely wanted to push back against that as any kind of in in much more general discourses uh, and find more unity here something else i mean marx this just comes from marx himself but he he was clear that so the surplus class it's worth saying is or the reserve army is he frame this as created by capitalism and necessitated by it so instead of saying like you know these people are like parasitic on the society or whatever which is how the kind of standard dominant framing that's to say people who aren't working people who are on benefits and, the, and so on are parasitic on society it says in a sense society or like capitalist society is, is parasitic upon all of us and pushes some of us into this surplus class so it puts it changes the it change it kind of blames the system rather than blames the individuals. It's not just that you know first there aren't enough jobs for everyone. It's not just that. It's also that capitalism needs a kind of reserve army of people who are unemployed for various reasons. Because if if there's a period of, of boom, for example, suddenly you need to employ more people. You need those people to be ready. Or it might be that there might there's a disaster or a war or a pandemic. People die or people are unable to work or they're 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 ill. You need you need reserve people to be ready, right? So capitalism needs this. It's part of its basic functioning. It creates this this surplus, as it were. So instead of just like framing this as kind of individual, like you know, lazy people or or whatever, or or even just people who are you know, in some sense, in a kind of Galtonian sense, subnormal, it kind of frames the system as parasitic upon us. Now that none of that will be news to anyone who is you know. Has spent some time reading Marx, of course. So that's just his a basic point he makes in Capital. 
And it's been used by disability studies scholars like Martha Russell and, as you noted, in health communism too, which I which I, I found really helpful for thinking about this. Now, in health communism, they they frame they do something interesting. This is Beatrice Adler Bolton and R.T. Vierkant. They frame the surplus as a class rather than as just a, a kind of subpopulation of the working class. And I thought that was interesting because it it changes the emphasis to focus on the needs of the of the surplus class. And they have a kind of almost like a surplus class pride. It's like a surplus manifesto. I think this might be a helpful way of thinking about these things for a bunch of reasons. Of course, when it comes to neurodivergence, neurodivergent and disabled people more generally are more likely to be kind of downwardly mobile, right? So, you know, if you if you're born into like a middle class family, you're more likely to kind of still end up in poverty than people who are non-disabled and born into a, a similar situation. Not necessarily, but but more often. So neurodivergent people have a tendency to end up in the surplus or towards the surplus or to be in there for longer periods than other people are. Of course, other things, there's other, you know, race also is relevant here and and uh, and, and and other factors, of course. So it's not just neurodivergence, but neurodivergence is a big factor. As I detail in the book, there's lots of statistics showing that, you know, people with ADHD or autistic people are unemployed in huge numbers, are um, more likely to get fired for various reasons and experience problems at work and so on. So I guess I was also trying to push back in neurodiversity. There's this in the movement, there's uh, what I call a kind of, some people call neurodiversity light, or I've previously called neoliberal neurodiversity. And I talk in the book about neurothatcherism, a kind of emphasis on showing that we can actually be useful for capital, right? That we can actually have our strengths can be utilized. And so like, please do employ us. But I argued that that very, to me, it seems very clear that that won't be liberatory. Firstly, there are never enough jobs for everyone anyway. So you know, capitalism doesn't create enough jobs for everyone. It needs this reserve army. Secondly, you know, that's only going to be the people who are, who do have those like trait. Of course, a strength means like whatever's useful for capital at a given time. It's not like, you know, <laughs> always useful. So there are always going to be people left out of that because, you know, capital has certain needs at any given time. I was trying to move away from that and to really focus on, on centering the surplus. I found the term, the concept of extractive abandonment helpful. I combined this with Marx's notion of the general intellect in the Grundrisse, where he suggests that the general intellect is a kind of driving force in in capitalism, in, in a sense. And I added to that that, in a sense, the the general intellect, and that's the intellect of all humanity, the kind of collective intellect, as it were, also needs neurodiversity to function. Right? If everyone you know, thought in the same way, the general intellect wouldn't be that robust. It wouldn't be that, you know, effective. It needs diversity and it, need, it needs surplus diversity as well. That means it needs surplus divergence. So even all those divergent people who are completely devalued in this system, who are discriminated against, who are locked out of work or, or whatever, are actually a necessary part of the functioning of that system. So again, I was trying to show that, you know, to change, to flip the kind of narrative, as it were, to show that it's not us that's parasitic on the system. It's the system which is parasitic on us. It needs surplus neurodivergence. It needs that for the neurodiversity of the general intellect. So I thought that would be a helpful. I mean, it's worth saying I don't have like I don't kind of give a kind of five point like strategy for like you know making a you know neurodivergent communism and exactly how to do that. But I think this is a good basis for for starting to think about it um, and to think yeah to think about where to go from here. Absolutely. Your, your revival of the concept of uh, the general intellect from the Grunrisser is deployed to a, 
a fantastic degree, particularly in terms of doing, you know, a classic bit of dialectical imminent critique, you know, comparing the system standards to itself and how it produces its own outcomes, particularly when it comes to the history of disablement as in diagnostic modes of reasoning. And so one of the things I actually want to pick up on just as, as we sort of come towards the hour is the, the kind of the shift away from Galton's model of psychiatry, model of analysis, which happens with Freud and kind of a return to some of the harmony ways. You know, the ego has to be in relative harmony with the components, with its own sort of desires, its own kinds of oppressions. But then this is displaced by a kind of anti-psychiatric movement predominantly from Thomas Zaz, less kind of so from like your David Coopers and your Ronnie Langs, who are still psychiatrists, still believe in a kind of mental illness, they just tackle it differently. Whereas Zaz, you know, just doesn't believe in it. He is a total denialist. But th- there's, in response to this this part of the history, you pick up on the, the, the formation of the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, particularly the third edition, which is, if if anyone's sort of ever read it, I mean, it's a bestseller on in its own right. It's just a cat. It's like the Argos catalog for mental for mental illnesses. You you can pick anything there. It's a giant book of categories. I mean, if anyone's I mean, is currently reading Antioculus, we we cite it as kind of like the the, the book of categories par excellence. It is half of that book is parodying in some ways the, the DSM three. But what's fascinating is it moves from this. In, in moving from a model of, of thinking mental illness as disease towards a model of mental illness as dysfunction, it, 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 it actually, you said, it actually brings back the Galton's pa- pathological paradigm, which it, it seems like we're moving away from that to some extent because you think disease, you think pathology, literally you know, pathogenesis, and dysfunction is just, you know, that's just things not working. But actually, that's where the capitalist, that's where the empire of modernity really comes to the forefront. And so could we unpack actually this this aspect of modern psychiatry and the changing nature of our concept of mental illness? Because it's it's this, I think, that a lot of people are going to encounter, especially in the States and the, in the wider Anglosphere, when they get diagnosed with certain types of neurodivergence and indeed they might even not be called mental illness, they would instead be called you know, personality disorders. I mean, ADHD is a disorder now, it's not a disease. And how, how does that, that change reflect upon the progression of your work and what its wider implications? Right, yes. Yeah. So the DSM-3 is published in 1980. As you mentioned, there was a kind of Freudian era before that. I mean, in the States, anti-psychiatry or kind of Sazian anti-psychiatry was primarily critical of, of Freudianism. It wasn't against like a medical model of disability as such or anything like that. In fact, it was pro-medical model of disability. It just said that, you know, mental illnesses as conceptualized by an, in a Freudian approach don't actually match up to that. They don't count as real illnesses. So that's the kind of Sazian position. So yeah, there are a whole bunch of crises in psychiatry. I, I won't go into them, but like, you know, the uh, pathologization of queerness or homosexuality is to use the term of the time and stuff like that. And lots of people would distrust in psychiatry and Freudian psychiatry in particular, and for very good reason, of course, with, with those kind of things. And then, yeah, you have this shift back to a sort, sort of more biocentric model. It was trying to be more scientific. They introduced this concept of mental disorder for the first time. So mental disorder, as defined in the DSM-3, and and the definition has only been slightly tweaked since. So, so you know, a few more editions have been published since that time. It says to be 
to be counted as having a mental disorder, you have to fulfill two conditions. One is to have a dysfunction, and that can be biological, psychological, or behavioral. If the behavior behaviors are seem like they're indicative of internal problems in some sense, if your biology or cognitive functioning. And also there's a harm condition. There has to be distress or disability, basically. And if you fulfill both these conditions, then you're counted as having a mental disorder. Now, that was supposed to be a much more watertight definition, in a sense, to stop undue pathologization. So to stop like pathologization of just people who deviate from social norms. And yet since that time, the of course, the the number of diagnoses has just skyrocketed. Now, I'm kind of ambiguous on the DSM, actually. So, so people love to hate the DSM-3, and there are very obvious problems with it, right? You have this, like, it's very, like, reductionist. You get kind of checklists of symptoms, and it's like, if you fulfill these, you've got this this disorder. And every every kind of edition that comes out, they add, like, 100 or so new disorders. And so there's lots of good reasons to kind of caricature it and so forth. On the one hand, I frame this as not something new, but a return to a Galtonian psychiatry. I mean, the concept of dysfunction is pretty much in line with his notion of, of like, you know, sub subnormal ability. It's subnormal functioning. You have all these kind of attempts at biostatistical analyses arising around that time. I detail some of them in the book, which suggest that you know, dysfunction is just objectively sub statistically subnormal functioning. For instance, for people in relation to all the people of your species, age, and sex, for instance. And that's just objective fact that if you fall below that, you're you're dysfunctional. So it kind of really ends up reifying these things and trying to make them seem completely natural. And and again, you have this kind of, of course, again, they're, they're often political problems. I spoke about earlier, this kind of the, the various shifts in, in post-Fordism, which are actually really disabling for people. But then if you get a diagnosis, it's framed as, you know, just an internal dysfunction. So really, it's a return of Galtonian psychiatry, of course, in a very different context. We don't have such direct and sort of crude authoritarian eugenics anymore. We have what I call a kind of privatization of eugenic responsibility. Um, there are all sorts of uh, ways that manifests. Um, so just for instance, in the UK, there's often reports of sperm banks turning away people because they've got um, diagnoses of things like uh, ADHD or autist they're autistic or so forth. Um, so, so that's a private company making that, that choice based on the kind of logics of the system and the, the various diagnoses. So yeah, there's all sorts of reasons why it's harmful and bad. At the same time, it gives people recognition who are actually suffering, um, of course, and who are disabled. I guess I'd leave on a hopeful note. As, much, as bad as the DSM three and and four and five are, and you know, I'm someone who thinks these should ultimately just be abolished. Right? The vocabularies do this interesting thing where they have allowed, in a sense, they allowed things like the neurodiversity movement to arise because, for instance, the category of autism was hugely expanded. So the DSM-3 introduces Asperger's syndrome. That's not used anymore. Now we say autism spectrum disorder, at least that's the clinical diagnosis. But it allows people to actually, you know, connect with each other and, and again, say like, oh, I've got these problems and you've got these problems. Actually, these are political problems, not just, not just medical problems. So I try to think about this more dialectically and think of it as, of course, it's a terrible thing and it's got so many problems and we should abolish it. At the same time, interestingly, it's kind of backfired by laying the grounds for this mass consciousness raising in, in a certain sense. Interestingly, this is, of course, not just national, but international. There's been a kind of colonial expansion of the DSM and, of course, the through the World Health 
organization which has its own its own manual with basically almost the same diagnoses as the DSM. And these are exported around the world in various ways. But again, that has allowed and, and that's been that's over kind of overrode local understandings and been harmful in all sorts of ways. At the same time, it's allowed people to kind of organize and fight for rights. So I'm, you know, I personally connected with lots of neurodivergent people around the world in the global south, for instance, who are using these terms like autism and stuff like that to fight for rights. So it kind of lays the grounds for this like cross-border form of resistance. So it, so there's this it, yeah, so there's this interesting dialectical process, which goes back to what I was saying earlier about the need to ultimately raise a neurodivergent consciousness, a historical and a class consciousness, so we can overcome those kind of understandings brought in by the DSM-3 and the eugenic practices enabled by them. Absolutely. In, ter- in terms of the, the imminence or the dialectic of of the DSM, it is absolutely, as you're saying, in terms of if you frame it all in terms of disorder and dysfunction, then in by following that impulse and the way the consciousness is sort of being turned towards, I, I have a disorder, I, I, am, I am being dysfunctional, functional in relation to what system defines the function. Oh, actually, I'm less productive for this system or I'm not productive in the way the system wants. And therefore, that is a way of weaponizing it. I mean, famously in the, I mean, one of my favorite sort of the anti-ableist protest tactics is the idea of you know generalizing disablement. Even, for example, in some art pieces. I mean, there's an art piece. Its name escapes me, but it's a, it's a sort of a, a lovely sort of like, vel- like vel- blue velvet drape po- sort of put over a step and says this step is now a seat. And it basically, it gen- mate, you can't use it anymore because it's people are sitting on it, and it generalizes the obstruction or the, the disablement that is built into the architecture spaces around it. And we see this also with the adapt protests. You know, the famous sort of getting. You know, because there's weren't accessible buses getting under the wheels or getting in front of cars, and then the cars that tried to take them away couldn't take them because they, they weren't accessible. They didn't even have ramps or any kind of voice or anything. And so th- there is a, a real sort of insurgent neurodivergent consciousness that, that you've really sort of laid out a lot of roots for here. I mean, I guess we're kind of just to sort of expand it. I mean, so I mean, are you working on the thing at the moment? What what sort of the where are you thinking of pushing forward in terms of this history and developing on the theses that you've already put forward in Empire of Normality? Yes. Yeah, so I leave Empire of Normality with some suggestions about you know this consciousness raising and and the focus on the surplus class and so forth. But that's that's different to actually having a a kind of strategy right so now i'm i'm kind of more interested in developing something on i'm thinking a lot at the moment about the black panthers they were you know so they were a marxist leninist party but instead of i mean why they're interesting for me among for so many reasons they focused on what they called the lumpen proletariat taking this term from marx and engels which is like marx and engels term for people who aren't workers in like the factories or whatever but they're people who are kind of outside of normal work or, or so on, but like in petty crime and theft and maybe sex work or drug dealing, these kinds of things. And the Black Panthers were, you know, refocused on that because they were like, well, we're left out of Marxist analysis. These are like, you know, often like poor black people in a primarily in the US who would have been more lump and proletariat, who Marx and Engels were very dismissive of. And they were like, well, let's center our politics on the lump and proletariat. And they developed this, you know, Marxist-Leninist party, which obviously in retrospect, it, it didn't, you know, it had certain problems, which are easy to see in retrospect. But I think they did something really interesting and important and powerful. But of course, and they moved away, they moved towards this concept of, of black power. I'm thinking more, I have a, a, there's a subtitle in one of my latest chapters called Towards Neurodivergent Power. I was kind of 
gesturing towards that. I'm thinking of trying to turn that into something more formal to a kind of politics of neurodivergent power. Of course, that's not just me. That's something we'd have to collectively do. And yeah, thinking about um, a kind of Marxist-Leninist neurodiversity politics. I, I should say, I hope the book is, even though it comes from a Marxist perspective, I don't kind of commit to one kind of Marxism, right? I draw on people in the kind of workerist and autonomous tradition. I draw on Marxist-Leninism, but I don't commit to any one of these one of, one of these tr- traditions so I'm interested in exploring that more. But again, as I say in the book, it's, that has to be something collective. So it's something I am working on right now. I hope other people will be working on it too. And I hope it's something we can all do together. Robert Jackman, thank you so much for coming on to Asset Horizon. Everyone, Empire of Normality is out now on Pluto Press. Buy it early, buy it often. If you're people in London, Housebands has a few damn copies. that it Fly off the shelves, don't worry. But anyway, folks, thanks for listening and we'll catch you later.